Well, look, we're thinking about this question, how come London can be so lonely? And as a you know, way of introducing it, I remember a few years ago, uh, a friend of mine um, who's uh, born and raised in Uganda and was visiting us from Uganda, and he'd not been to London before. So Rebecca and I picked him up from the airport, and as we were driving kind of into London, he was just overwhelmed by the sheer size of this city. And so he said, you know, Pete, how many you know, people live in London? I said, I think it's like eight and a half to nine million. He said, wow, nine million people all in one space. London must be the friendliest city on earth. And we kind of said, uh, not so much, right? And by the fact that you're chuckling, you know that just putting people together in close proximity does not make somewhere friendly, does not deal with the problem of isolation and loneliness. And it's not just London, is it? Uh, in the late modern world, we are more and more densely populated as more and more people become urbanized. And so we're closer together, living cheek by jowl with people like never before. And yet, we face a time of unprecedented, even of epidemic level loneliness, as we're going to see. So we're going to be thinking about that this evening, and we're going to think, first of all, about the problem of loneliness. Then we're going to think maybe what the cause is behind loneliness and try to kind of pass that out a bit. And then we'll be thinking about the remedy for loneliness as we look at the particular ways that the good news of Jesus Christ speaks into that and changes us from the inside out to become agents of reconciliation, seeking to undo the problem of loneliness in communities. Well, look, that's where we're going. Let's think, first of all, about the problem of loneliness. I don't think I need to convince you, um, but here's some statistics, because when I was researching this, even though I knew that there was this problem with loneliness, I think I was struck by how severe the problem is, particularly in London and in the West. So in Europe, 18% of the population across Europe would describe themselves as socially isolated, which means they socialize with only one other person once a month. That's nearly one in five are only socializing with one other person once a month on average across Europe. That's enormous, isn't it? Large-scale studies in the West show that 20 to 28% of people feel frequently lonely. And that is very different in the West, where it's that high, nearly a quarter of the population or slightly higher than that, whereas in the, the rest of the world, it's between 3 to 10%. So this is a particular problem for the West. Now, I know some of you here will not be from the West by birth, and you may be struck by just how isolating the Western experience of living in London is. People in Australia, interestingly, report the highest levels of loneliness, with 28% saying they feel frequently lonely. UK is 23%, US is 22%. So to break that down, that means about a quarter of the population in the UK are feeling frequently lonely. Again, one in four, it's just very, very high. And it might not surprise you that London is a particularly lonely city. According to a timeout survey of 18 global cities, London was the loneliest, with 55% of people saying it can feel lonely in London. So over the half the population of London identify with this problem of loneliness. I mean, it's just epidemic-level proportions. And the problem is that loneliness isn't only a disposition kind of social. It's not only a social problem, but there's long been established a link between um, loneliness and depression. Um, so uh, Mark's wife, Jo, who's a psychologist, actually wrote a chapter in a book of psychology. She's a psychologist by training about this very, very you know, kind of tangible link that there is between loneliness and depression. It's not that everybody who's got depression is caused by loneliness, but those who do have loneliness are certainly more prone to depression, and it's arguably one of the biggest causes of the epidemic of depression that we have in our society as well. 
So mental ill health is caused to a degree and certainly can be factored into one of the problems of, uh, of loneliness. But also physical ill health. I was really struck by this. A 2012 study by a doctor called Dr. Perisonotto. He looked at the relationship between self-reported loneliness and health outcomes in people older than 60. And in the study, which was a pretty big study, 43% of those over 60 reported feelings of loneliness. And after following up with those individuals, they had significantly higher rates of these health problems, declining mobility, difficulty in performing daily routines, and even death during six years of follow-up. And look, let's, let's just ground this for me. One of my great sadnesses of the last couple of years was two years ago, just before the um, pandemic kicked in, an elderly resident um, on the Redbrick estate who lived upstairs, she died, and it took four days, four days before anyone found her, because she was so lonely. Uh, it's just awful. Uh, thanks be to God, there are some volunteers from the church family who wonderfully have been doing elderly visiting to try to deal with some of that problem on the Redbrick estate, but we, we're not big enough to get around everybody. This is the problem of loneliness. And it's not just the elderly as well, is it? Actually, all the statistics show that the younger generation are coming through as the loneliest generation. It, it certainly gets worse as we get older and family and become more isolated, but actually, the younger generation of adults, I'm afraid looking around the room, that's most of us here, are the ones who experience it most acutely. Now, there's a curious paradox there that we've got to be aware of because we are the most connected generation the history of the world has ever known. And so here's this strange paradox. We have devices which allow us to make video calls to people at the click of a button, right, across the world. We can stay in contact, that is, connections with more people through social media and through things like Facebook and Instagram, you know, than ever before. And yet, we are more lonely than any other generation. The um, evil king Tantalus in Greek mythology and this is where we get the word to tantalize from, was tortured by the gods for his cruelty by being put in a pool of water just out of reach of, um, a reach of a beautiful fruit tree. And he would be ever thirsty and ever hungry. And every time he tried to go down to the water to scoop up some water, it drained away completely. And every time he tried to reach for the tree, the tree would recoil back. So he could never get the water and the, the food that he needed, though it's just out of reach. And isn't it in the worst sense tantalizing that here we are, with connection to more people than ever before. And yet we feel more disconnected, more lonely than ever before. That's the problem. Hashtag alone together, right? We're together, but we feel alone. And is there any worse fate really for us as modern human beings than being in a crowd full of people and yet feeling disconnected and alone? Literally tantalizing. That's the problem of loneliness. Let's think maybe more about the cause of loneliness, because I think this is really challenging. Now, on one level, we want to acknowledge a bunch of social factors that have no doubt played into that. Rampant individualism in the West clearly hasn't helped. The pace of modern life might not help. Commuting times post-industrial revolution might not have helped. There's a load of contextual factors we want to think about. But one thing I want to impress upon you is that it's more, it goes deeper than that. It's more of a heart-level problem. Think about the way we view ourselves in the West. In Genesis, when God makes um, humanity, there's only one thing in his good world before the fall, before sin, that is not good. He says it's not good for man to be alone, and so he creates community. But in the West, we flipped that script 
where actually we seem to think that actually independence, being self-reliant, is a good thing. It is good to be alone, right? That's what we kind of think. Don't be, don't be dependent on anyone. That's seen almost as a dirty word. You're dependent on someone. What, can't you stand on your own two feet? Or need is usually seen as neediness, and don't be needy. So be a self-realized, self-actualized, self, we wouldn't say it, centered person. Otherwise, it's all about you. But if we view ourselves all in the realms of an individual and a self and disconnected from other people, not needing people, then it isn't any wonder if that's the narrative of our hearts that we feel lonely. Our mantra is that of the Simon and Garfunkel song. I have no need for friendship. Friendship causes pain. It's laughter and it's love that I disdain. I am a rock. But we're not rocks. We're human beings. We're made for connection. You know, at a very deep level, when children are newborn, they need human connection. No surprise there. Not just the functional realities of milk and sustenance and air, but they need human touch. You know, one of the important things that um, neonatal nurses do for children in intensive care is they go around, they, they just touch them because it makes a huge difference. Is it any different for us as adults? Hasn't it been agony just to miss the simple realities of touch, connection over the last 18 months? We're not rocks, friends. We're not islands. And here's the thing. Think of the difference between solitude and loneliness, right? To show that it's not contextual. Solitude is a content state of being alone. I recommend it to you if you're a Londoner. You know, practice appropriate solitude. Have some time. We do it all with the staff on uh, at the church here. We, we say, go on retreat, literally to, to take yourself away from people, to connect and to pray and to have some time to kind of reorientate yourself to the wonderful realities of who God is and who you are in relationship with Him. You need solitude for that, a long-lost discipline and art. But loneliness, ironically, you can be in a room full of people and yet you feel lonely. Why? Because it's a, an attitude of the heart. If you constantly see yourself as a rock and an island, then little wonder if you don't really make meaningful connections with people. And that's why I wanted to have this reading from Ephesians 2 read, because it gets to the heart of the problem. It goes deeper than mere context and cultural factors. Let me read verse 12 to you where the problem is outlined. The Apostle Paul says this, Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. I want to highlight from this three dynamics of separation or alienation that the Apostle Paul highlights that really gets to what is underneath loneliness. First of all, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, and he tops and tells the verse, without God in the world. In other words, the primary source of our alienation, the primary source of our loneliness is actually our vertical alienation from God. We've been separated from God. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were made for delight and joy in a relationship with God where everything was there, was there given to them as a free gift from a generous God, their loving Father, who wanted to give them everything. But they didn't want to be in a dependent relationship from God. So they did what we have all done subsequently. They went it alone. Notice the phrase? Do it alone. Go it alone. And so they did. They said, we don't need you, God. We'll take your gifts, thanks very much, but we won't take you we can do it independent of you. We're adults. We're grown people. We can make decisions without you. We don't need to be dependent on you. 
And so they declared independence from God. That's the first alienation. But it didn't end there. Alienation from God, yes, without Christ and without God in the world. But then do you notice how in that verse it goes from that, remember you were separate from Christ, and then horizontal relationships, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise. You hear those words, exclusion, foreigners, strangers, other These are the words of community breakdown, because what happens as soon as Adam and Eve become separated from God, so they start to separate from one another. The blame game kicks in. Adam blames Eve, and Eve blames Adam for whose fault it was for sinning. The battle of the sexes ensues. Alienation between genders, and it's been going on ever since. And then we stop seeing each other as bound together in a family with God, and because of that, we start to see each other as other. And it's been all over the news, hasn't it? The language, other, strangers, exclusion, send them back, immigrants, viewing people as other on the basis of where they were born or their skin color or their gender, not our problem. We're trying to make out ourselves to be an island nationally but also individually, and we see other people as a threat rather than as a common human being that I'm connected with, that I share common humanity with, that I'm linked with whether I like it or not. I can't choose that. And so exclusion and separation kick in, division where there should be unity, the breakdown of community. Alienation from God leads to alienation from others, and then the final step is actually it leads to alienation from self. At the end of the verse, verse 12, they're described as without hope. Is there any greater or worse description of alienation from self when you've lost that most human of virtues? Hope to see the best in others, to see the best in the future, to trust in God so that you know that he will work things out for your good. Once you lose that, you've lost all hope. You're truly lost. And so is it any wonder that one of the great terrible images that Scripture uses of this alienation across these three dynamics, alienation from God, alienation from others, alienation from self, is darkness, like a cosmic solitary confinement where we're no longer forming meaningful connections with people without God, without hope in the world. One of Jesus' most famous parables actually makes this point vividly and um, in a way that really comes home to us. You remember the parable of the prodigal son? So he's there, he's in the father's house, he's got community, he's got joy, he's got everything he needs. The father will give him everything. He'll want for nothing, right? But he doesn't want that. He wants independence. So he says to the father, give me the inheritance. An ancient Middle Eastern way of saying, you're dead to me. You're dead to me. I want your gifts, but I don't want you. I don't want you, the giver. And so he takes the gifts. The father gives it to him, says, okay, you want it, my son? You're an adult, you make the choice. And so he takes it, and like so many before him and so many after him, he thinks he's now got independence. He thinks he's now a real man. So he goes off to the far country. You remember what he does in the far country? Makes all the mistakes that a young adult can make. He squanders it on wild living. So he's alienated from his father now, far off. But what happens? Well, he's squandering all his money on wild living. He ends up humiliated in a pigsty where he has to feed the pigs just to earn enough money just to be able to kind of make it through. But here's the point, right? In the Middle Eastern culture of the day, to be with pigs was to be ceremonially unclean. 
So the, the, the parable is making the point that once he separates from the father, he becomes separated from people. No one would have anything to do with him when he's in the pigsty. And is there a more degrading image for a Jewish man than to be in the mud with the pigs? He's separated from himself. You see, the parable Jesus tells has got new levels of depth to it. Alienation from God leads to alienation from others, leads to alienation from self until the son comes to his senses, which brings us to the question, how do we deal with this problem of loneliness? Let's look now at the gospel remedy for loneliness. I hope you can see that if the problem of loneliness is not circumstantial or merely cultural, but is primarily a disposition of the heart, then the heart is the area where the medicine of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, has to be applied to. And particularly this heart disposition of hostility or enmity to God, to others, and even to ourselves needs to be dealt with. We get it coming up in verses 14 and 16. Verse 14, for he, that is Jesus Christ, himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Notice how he deals with hostility. Verse 16, and in one body, reconciling both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. The heart attitude of hostility is dealt with. In uh, the temple um, in Jerusalem, there was an outer court where the Jews would be able to go in, but the Gentiles, all the rest of the nations, would not be able to go in. And the Jews had taken that um, outer wall, that dividing wall, and they turned it into something that God never intended. They wrote, inscribed on it, Gentiles who go beyond this point will be responsible for their own death. In other words, they'd taken ethnic distinctions and they'd made it a point of death. You're not welcome. But it wasn't just that outer wall. If you go inside into the temple, actually, there was a sense in which people couldn't get too close to God. There was the holiest of holies from the most holy place, and this was a dividing wall there as well as the curtain between God and humanity to keep them out because of our sin. We can't go in. So the temple, in some sense, was a beautiful place, but also a place of separation, ethnic separation, separation from God. But when Jesus dies on the cross, he deals with that hostility once and for all. Primarily, he deals with the separation between us and God. That's why in all of the accounts of Jesus' death, we have this significant detail of the darkness on the cross. In the middle of the day, from noon until three o'clock, there was a supernatural darkness that came over the land. And we get the metaphor, darkness is about separation, it's about alienation, it's about being lonely, being alone, like being in solitary confinement. Because the point is that when Jesus dies on the cross, he's plunged into the darkness. Now pause for a moment and think about that. This is the Son of God who's always been in a perfect relationship with His Father, always known love from His Father, never declared independence from His Father. And yet on the cross, as the darkness falls, He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's abandoned on the cross. He's cosmically alone on the cross. He experiences the hell of darkness on the cross. Why? Not for anything He's done but because on the cross he's taking what you've done, what I've done, for our declaration of independence from God, for all the ways we've said, God, I'll go it alone, thanks very much. Give me the inheritance, you're dead to me. I want your gifts, but I don't want you. And we've ended up in a pigsty. 
And so he's thrown into the darkness so that we can come into the light. Another metaphor he uses, he says that on the cross, his body, the temple, is broken. Why? Well, think of all the dividing walls in the temple. Suddenly, they're knocked down. The barrier between Jew and Gentile, down. The barrier between God and man, knocked down. That's why when Jesus dies on the cross, the temple of the curtain is torn in two. Because suddenly God is saying, the keep outside is torn down. It's been torn down in Jesus' body. As his body is broken down, the walls are broken down. And so we can now come back into relationship with God. And as we come back into relationship with God, how we view one another changes. We get that in verse 15. By setting aside in his flesh the law with his commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself, notice the wording, one new humanity. Not lots of different individuals. Not lots of different diverse ethnicities divided. One humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. In other words, on the cross, he brings us together. He says, you're part of one family. You all live in relationship with one God. You're all united in one spirit. You've all been saved by one Savior. You all have one faith as you trust in Jesus Christ. Therefore, you are one. Which doesn't mean that there are no distinctions, that there's nothing between genders anymore. Yes, there are still male and female. Yes, there are still ethnic distinctions. They are, they are important, but they're not ultimate. The ultimate distinction is that you are one in Christ. And it changes your heart because you start to say, hang on, I'm not separate to her or separate to him. I'm united to her and him in Christ. One new humanity, no longer foreigners, no longer strangers, but brought together. I mentioned my friend Martin from Uganda at the beginning. He... Um, He's got a really fascinating story. When he was a young child, he ran away from home trying to actually go it alone. His father was a pastor, um, but Martin thought there was nothing for him in the rural village where he lived in Uganda, so he, he ran away to the local town, and there he became a street kid, very, very much like the prodigal son, as he would put it himself. And there he got so low that awfully, about age 18, 19, he decided he was going to commit suicide. He knew the gospel. He knew he was running away not just from his family, but he was running away from God. He tried to commit suicide three times. Three times the Lord miraculously intervened. The final time, he, was, uh, he bought a vial of poison and walked out into the, um, into the kind of bush to commit suicide. And a man was walking past with a big pile of mangoes. And he said to him, uh, he said, oh, my son, you look, um, you look like you're hungry. Have all these mangoes. And you just gave him a bunch of mangoes. And the thing that was a game changer for Martin, because it was kindness, it was community. But Martin saw behind it the kindness of God. And he prayed a prayer then, a remarkable prayer. He said, God, you're trying to bless me. I can see that. In any way you bless me from now on, I'm going to bless others. When Rebecca and I go out to see Martin, even though he's you know, got none of the material wealth that we have here in the West, we're always amazed. Not only does he look after his own children, but he's always got loads of adopted children he's looking after, children he's putting through school. He always has a bunch of extended community staying in his house. There's always enough room. There's always food. There's always community. His house is a place where loneliness doesn't exist for many people. What changed him? The gospel changed him. He started to see that because he's meaningfully connected with God, blessed by God through Jesus Christ, so he's connected with other people. And so guess what? It's made him an agent for reconciliation in God's world, breaking down the barriers of disunity. 
And that's what this final part of Ephesians 2 ends with, and I want to end with this as well. Verse 19, consequently, when you get this, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. You're not estranged from one another, but you're fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, this whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his Spirit. In other words, he's saying, when you really get what Jesus has done for you, you become a community builder. You get stuck into your community. You break down the barriers of hostility wherever you see them. You say, Christ has gone the extra mile for me, so I'll go the extra mile for anybody else around me. You see what he's done to pay the price for disunity and for aloneness. And so you say, I'm not going to allow that. Aloneness is an offense to God, so I'm going to deal with it. And so you cross over the other side of the street, or you knock on the door of your neighbors, or you go across the office to the person who's struggling. You see people not as other, but as part of one common humanity, and you start to deal with the problems of aloneness. And only that, ground up, heart, inside out, is going to change this world that we live in, from being a place of rampant loneliness to being a place of community. Notice the word community, unity, together, in Christ. That's the vision. Well, let me lead us in a prayer, and then you have a chance for your questions. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do want to pray this wouldn't just be abstract reality, though I'm conscious that for many hearing this today might be the first time. Lord God, but for us, wherever we are, that this might be um, an opportunity for us to see ourselves differently related to you through Jesus Christ, um, brought together by his blood, therefore bound together as one common humanity. And that might change us to be agents for reconciliation, community builders in the world. That's the way it should be. That's what the local church has always been throughout history when it's worked well, and that's what it should be today. So help us to think this through and to change in these ways, we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.